Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm your other host, Jeremy. This is a weekly podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. So if we sound a little stuffy today, we almost made it an entire year due to quarantining without getting sick. And then our toddler son hung out with his cousin like one time and he came home with a runny nose and now we're all stuffed up. And boom. We made it almost a whole year without being sick. Yep. It was, it was lovely and glorious. I almost I forgot what it was like to not be able to breathe through my nose. I know. <laughs> I I'm so th- glad I get this experience again. It was definitely, was yeah. A too miss- much fresh air. Yeah. I woke up this morning with cotton mouth. I was like, what is happening? Am I dying? <laughs> <laughs> I know this is just what it's like to be sick. I forgot. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but I took a bunch of vitamin C. Load it up. Load it up. I drank some tea today. That was about all I did and got out into some sunshine. But for presidential trivia today, we're coming up on the Super Bowl here soon. Mm. So for presidential trivia this week, which president... Never went to a Super Bowl. (laughs) I feel like there's (laughs) a lot of them. (laughs) Most of them. You think just like in attendance or like actually played at the Super Bowl? Actually played at the Super Bowl, I don't think any of them. All of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. But which president was offered a professional contract by both the Packers and the Lions? For what? To play football for them. Oh, to play football? Yes. By both the... the... Green Bay Packers and the Detroit Lions. God, none of them look athletic. (laughs) I kind of want to say W because I'm thinking, you know, when the guy talks, he kind of sounds like he might have been hit in the head. Too many times. (laughs) And I love the guy, but you know, like I just, well, remember I was showing you that clip video that I watched, documentary called Hot Coffee, and there's a clip of Bush in it, and he's like, and the OB, and the OBs, they just love, and you can see like, the look at his face, and he's like, women, and they ain't going to be able to do what they love. (laughs) Anyways, it just, he was, he, that was just him. Like, he just kind of loved talking himself into these corners. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of that office quote with Michael Scott. He's like, sometimes I just start talking and I don't know where it's headed. <laughs> yes. Until I get there. Yeah. That was, that's W. Um, it was not W, but the answer will be at the end of this episode. Oh, man. So stay tuned. Okay, so we are going to talk about spiritualism today. Okay. I've got spirit. Yes, I do. (laughs) I've got spirit. How about you? It has nothing to do with football. (laughs) Oh, so it's not cheerleading. So it's not cheerleading. Oh, I see. I thought that was a good little segue. You're like, no. Spiritual. You get from football into cheerleading. Six degrees of separation there. Uh, That that one was only three, but yeah. (laughs) John Murray Spear was born in Boston on September 16, 1804. John and his brother Charles were young when their father died. John was forced to quit school when his father passed away to work in a local cotton factory. A clerk at the factory taught John how to read and write, which later allowed him to study theology. When was the cotton gin invented? 
Well, are you talking about if it had been invented or if it had been patented in the U.S. by Eli Whitney? Yeah. Because I found out that Eli Whitney didn't invent it. He just patented mm. patented it in America. Right. I think, it had, already I been, think, it had I, been invented I, I, in, like, India. Yeah, I think I knew that. But um, he was gra- Eli Whitney was granted the pat- patent in 1794. So, there's already... Ten years earlier. Well... He was born in 1804. I don't assume that John started working in the cotton factory (laughs) as a teeny tiny baby. He was young, but I don't think that young. (laughs) And I don't have a date for when he started working at the cotton factory because there's not a lot known about his early life. Yeah. The records are pretty slim from the 1800s. Yeah. Especially early 1800s. And if you were born poor, there's not very many records about you. So he studies theology, thanks to this clerk, becomes ordained, and he takes a position as a minister in the town of Barstable, Massachusetts. Along with being a minister, John often took up and spoke about social justice issues such as labor reform, women's rights, and the abolition of slavery. John organized anti-slavery conventions. He hung out with Frederick Douglass a lot. This all despite many in his church being opposed to mixing politics and religion. Mm. John also helped arrange legal services to help escaped slaves attain their freedom. John quickly became an enemy to slave owners, and after being threatened with legal action, he was forced to resign as a minister. In 1844... Wow, the church felt that strongly, uh... yeah. Yeah. Uh. In 1844, John traveled to Portland, Maine to speak at an anti-slavery rally. During his speech, a pro-slavery mob dragged him off the stage. They brutally beat him and left him comatose. We don't want your views here. <laughs> like, that's, uh, that's what's... Well, they think this is even, this is in the north. Right. Too. This isn't even in the south. Yeah. So. That's crazy. Yeah. He was far beyond, far beyond his time. Over the following months, John slowly recovered from his wounds. Good. Once he was well enough healed, he jumped back into his abolition work with even more fervor than before. John organized more anti-slavery conventions, local rallies, gave speeches wherever he could, and became a leader of the Underground Railroad in the Boston area. So, can't stop him. Right. Fellow abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison said of John, Although the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, we do not object at all to the use of the spear. John also began to visit and help prisoners while also campaigning against the death penalty, which I feel like is, like, maybe, like, way ahead of his time. Yeah. Considering we still have the death penalty. Right, right. Well, and so we're, what, mid-1800s now? Yeah. Uh, Still early 1800s, like 1820s. Yeah, mid-mid-1800s-mid-early. Yeah. Mid-half front quarter. Mid-quarter, 1800s. <laughs> Pre-Civil War. We're pre-Civil War. Right. And I feel like, you know, the death penalty. I mean, shoot, people were still dueling and, and you know, having, being hung for crimes. Yeah. Without like, a formal trial. Yeah, like, people are still being, like, I feel like, and, and then you think the Wild West and people are just shooting each other. Right. Well, in the West, I mean... The West remained that way until, I mean, the late, late, late 1800s. Early 1900s, yeah. 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 
So, so yeah, so being against the death penalty was a very huge. progressive stance at yeah. this time. Yeah. By working with criminals, both in and out of the prison system, John began to shape the role of what is now known as the parole officer. Hmm. And he essentially helped a lot of criminals like Get out. reform back to normal life after they were out of prison. Right. In 1852, John began to dive into spirituality. Spirituality hmm. is huge in the 1800s. People are attending a lot of seances, visiting a lot of mediums, trying to speak with the dead. Is that when the Ouija board was invented? I don't know if that's when the Ouija board was invented. <laughs> was in the mid-quarter 1800s? I mean, but 1800s were like peak spiritualism. Yeah. Tell me to Google it. Yeah. When was... Ooh, how do you spell it? Oh. I don't want to Google it on my phone. Oh. I, can... <laughs> I don't want to Google it on my phone. A ghost is going to take over your phone. Yeah. When was... Oh, you wide Board invented. Oh, and now there's random letters scrolling across my phone. Shouldn't have done it. <laughs> Gotta throw out your phone now. Um, the, so talking boards were the precursor to the Ouija board. Which were big in the 1800s. Yeah, talking boards. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, we're like... We're like right around there. Yeah. 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 But like the Ouija board was 1890. Okay. By Elijah Bond. But like their precursor was already... Talking boards. Yeah. yeah. In circulation. Yeah. Or in use. Probably not circulation, because I imagine you just make your own Probably. back of the day out of corn husks and <laughs> what goat's blood. <laughs> goat's blood. Well, I know that they had boards where you like would stick a pencil through a hole and then the spirit would like guide the medium or the psychic's hand to like write messages uh, i think that's what they're talking about with talk boards i can i can barely write with my right hand let alone a pencil <laughs> and a board that i'm hanging on to well that's why you're not a psychic <laughs> <laughs> a medium a medium yes in his own independent ministry so he doesn't have like he's not a, affiliated he's not affiliated so he's kind of free, free agent he's freelancing <laughs> free agent yeah john let the messages of spirits direct him that year, John published a book of letters from his namesake and pioneer minister, John Murray, titled Messages from the Superior State. The original John Murray had been dead for 37 years, but John declared that God had asked him to communicate with the spirit world, and these were the messages that John Murray gave him while he was in a trance. Hmm. John began to go into more trances and became a mouthpiece for other spirits beyond the veil. While in a trance, John would sometimes give medical advice to friends that actually helped his friends get better from illnesses. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> John would also translate messages from other spirits, such as Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, and a group of spirits that formed the Congress of Spirits, or also known as the Association of Benef Beneficence. Benef Beneficence. He had a lot of names. For, like, there's, like, the different groups of spirits that he would talk to. Yeah. And he had different names for each of them, and there's quite a few. So. Hmm. But he was speaking to some very important spirits. spirits. Uh. While channeling Thomas... Did he ask Abe Lincoln about the time that his body almost got stolen? Well, Abe Lincoln was still alive at this time. Why didn't he warn him? <laughs> I don't know if they can tell the future. 
Well, I'm not sure how his spirits work. He's a work. dick because he didn't. <laughs> because he had saved Abe Lincoln's son a lot of grief about the attempted theft of his father's future body. Or, you know, like, also, like, him getting assassinated. Oh, yes. yes. That, too. Yeah. I mean, if he could tell the future, maybe he, like, just stops yeah. the assassination of yeah. Lincoln. Kind of all people who can see into the future are dicks, because they don't do anything to help us out about it. Yeah, I think that's maybe why it's, like, not a thing. Hmm. That's my take on it. It's either not a thing or they're all horrible people. <laughs> I'm going with the latter. Okay. So... While channeling Thomas Jefferson, John insisted that the spirit called government leaders that supported slavery infernal scoundrels that should be shut up in pits of everlasting infamy, and that America's progress towards liberty had been thwarted by a nation of thieves that had stolen that which is of most value, human rights. Which makes me wonder if he was really channeling Thomas Jefferson, because Thomas Jefferson had slaves. Right. So, and also repeatedly raped one of his slaves. At mm. least one of them. But how do you gain supporters of non-believers in validity? Right. Well, that's why I'm just... I'm suspicious that he's not really channeling the spirits. Because mm. I doubt Thomas Jefferson would all of a sudden be against slavery. Unless mm. something happened to him in the afterlife. Right. I'm just saying. That's my take on it. <laughs> I said, it's hot down here. Don't do it. Don't do it. While in a do, trance... Did you get it? I got oh Thomas Jefferson isn't Jefferson is in hell. <laughs> I got it. The just a just a joke. <laughs> Who's to say? Who's to say? I'll tell you that. I'm not gonna be the one to judge. I'm gonna I'm gonna judge you if you own slaves. Oh, well yeah, but I'm not I'm not and what I'm saying is I'm not Saint Joseph. Who's Saint Joseph? <laughs> I'm not Saint Paul at the Pearly Gates. St. Peter? <laughs> I'm not St. Peter Let's at the pearly gates. Let's just say gates. you're none of them. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a terrible person. <laughs> you know how bad I am with names. I do. Can you explain? Please explain to our listeners how bad I am with names. Um, he's. Just, I think you. I think nobody needs explanation. <laughs> I think they understand now how bad at names you are. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. Anywho. While in a trance, John gave a 12-part lecture at Hamilton College on geology. John had no training on geology, yet the lecture was accurate and comprehensive. Hmm. He just let the spirits talk through him uh. about geology. There's no way to just, like, fake that. Sure. So either A, he did actually know something about geology. Yes. Or B, there was really spirits. Yeah. Guiding his speech. Yes. Which, I wonder what these spirits have going on in the afterlife that they feel like they need to talk about geology and rocks to people after they've been dead. People who were passionate about it? Very passionate. <laughs> that they had to take over somebody's body yes. to tell people about rocks. Yeah, see, and, and the other thing is, too, is like, it's not like this guy had Google back in the day. He couldn't just go and Google latest geology tech yeah, or it's information. Very, it's very hard to research John also stated that the Congress of Spirits requested John to build machines, including a circular city, a perpetual motion machine, electric thinking machine, electric ship, and an improved sewing machine. There is no evidence that he actually built any of these devices, but he did have plans for them. Hmm. In 1853, John announced that the spirits, especially Benjamin Franklin, 
would soon share an invention with John that would be God's last best gift to man. John began to gather supporters that would help him build the contraption. The spirits instructed John to build the machine in Lynn, Massachusetts. There was a hill named High Rock that held deep spiritual power and conveniently already had a tower built upon it. The tower belonged to the Hutchinson family singers. The Hutchinsons traveled the country putting on a variety show that included song, comedy, and sketches. Basically everything you could want. All in one. That sometimes included parts of their anti-slavery beliefs. That's kind of how they met John, through their mutual anti-slavery circles. Yeah. And so when John asked to use their tower, they handed him the keys. Said, go for it. Hmm. In October of 1853, John went into a trance in which the spirits gave instructions on how to build the device, while others in the room took notes. John kept calling the machine the new motive power, or the infant motor. The device would become a holding vessel for the new messiah. What is it making? <laughs> well, we'll get into that. But it's supposed It's to- one of those things with those eight balls on it and just... <laughs> Not quite. A little bit more complex than that. It's supposed to hold literally like the second coming of Christ's spirit in it. So we're trapping him now? In a machine. In a way. So we put him in a cave the first time. That wasn't enough? Nope. Gotta find something that'll actually keep this guy down? Apparently. Oh my gosh. According Christians, to- am I right? <laughs> According- <laughs> <laughs> You're on one today. <laughs> So, according to the spirits talking through John, the device would be a living working mechanism that would bear offspring and create a race of cloned, self-powered machines. It would be the remedy to the curse of Adam and would remove humanity's need to earn wages and food by the sweat of its brow. The device would bring leisure to all people, thus ending slavery, farming, factory work, and housework. Mm. I think what he's saying is that it's going to be give birth to a whole bunch of tiny little robots that do all of the work. Robots? Now, where how did we get from the second coming of Christ to robots? Well, the second coming of Christ is in the mach- in the big machine, and the big machine is going to give birth to little baby machines that then do all the work for us, so we don't have to work anymore. Hmm. <laughs> Stay with me. I'm not. I'm not. You've lost me. <laughs> That's all right. I'm lost too. It doesn't really make sense. This is what the spirits are telling him. And without needing to complete daily labor tasks, people could spend their time collectively working to make the world a better place. You, you gotta. You gotta just let go of how things like really work. <laughs> it's. It's kind of like magic. John would go into daily trances over the next nine months and would let the spirits guide his hands to tools and materials to build the device. John fastened all of the pieces to the top of a black walnut table with insulated legs. As time went on, John added a series of copper, zinc, iron, and magnetic plates that was supposed to act as, like, the brain of the machine. On top of the plates, two magnetized struts rose from either side, looking like limbs. From the limbs, magnetized balls were suspended on copper chains. Apparently there was, like, a whole lot of little magnetized balls all over the machine. A respiratory system created from a metal plate from metal plate lungs were added along with hair-like antennae, hair-like antennae 
that would be used to conduct etheric power. This was all to be powered by a central motor (laughs) that would act as like the heart. Over the time of construction, it's believed that John and his followers spent around $2,000 constructing the device. Around $60,000 today. Jeez. Well, well, no, because nowadays you would just go to a scrapyard and probably buy all those pieces for probably quite literally $2,000. Like the most expensive thing you've said, I think, is probably the copper chain, maybe the magnets. Yeah. Depending on how many of them they needed. But like in my mind, I'm like, "Eh, you could probably do that with like $2,000 of junkyard scrap metal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know what it would actually cost today if you were being like frugal about it, right. you know. Probably $2,000. Probably $2,000. You're probably right. <laughs> While the device was being constructed, there's a jalopy jungle about 3 miles <laughs> down the road. <laughs> Farmer Fred, he's got a ton of rust buckets out in his fields. I mean, let's just build one and see what it takes us. While the device was being constructed, only certain people were allowed to be in the machine's presence so that the device would only be introduced to positive vibration levels. (laughs) You can't give it any harsh vibes, man. (laughs) Now that the device was built, a woman had to be chosen to become the new Mary. Savory Jesus needs a mom. Wow. Through this woman, the spirit of the new Messiah would be born and placed into the new device. The woman that was chosen was Sarah Newton, the wife of one of John's followers. John had chosen her after having a series of visions that she would be the new motive power's mother. Sarah accepted the role as the Mary of the New Dispensation, as they started to call her. Oh, God. Is this just a cult? (laughs) It's kind of sounding like it, isn't it? Like, I really liked John and his valiant efforts, but... Yeah, he started out really cool. Like anti-slavery and... I wonder if when he was beaten by that mob and he, like, went into a coma, if something didn't happen in his brain. Yeah. Some of the parts got rearranged. Yeah. And Sarah began to live in the laboratory with the machine full-time so that she could establish and maintain an umbilical link with the device. Daily efforts were made to charge the machine with life. Oh, God. That's not where I thought you were going with that (laughs) Daily efforts were made to impregnate. Well, some evidence suggests that these efforts were sexual. They Mm. were never written down in detail, but some believe, yeah. She had sex with the robot. Maybe. Not with John, though. With the robot. Because, like, in my mind, I'm thinking cult leader. Now he's just going to... I'm not going to say no to any of that. You know, get her all drugged up and And make her think it was the robot. And I don't know if John didn't try to bring life into the machine either. Ew. Yeah. Gross. I know. <laughs> On June. What? If you just literally, I get, I, that's why I'm imagining that my like farmer's field like robot Jesus jail. Yeah, I mean, I isn't think, that what it is? I think that's what's going on. These guys are messed up. Yeah, it's uh, it, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here, and none of it really makes sense. Huh. On June twenty eighth, eighteen fifty four, Sarah went into labor. John then donned copper armor that was outfitted with gemstones and batteries. Again, don't ask me why. And then went into a trance. Sarah began to writhe in pain, like she was actually in labor. And witnesses in the the room reported seeing a glowing transparent umbilical cord. 
Some say the umbilical cord was between Sarah and the machine, and others said it was between John and the machine. So, you mean the guy that's got batteries all over his body? <laughs> yeah, that's called an arc. A R C. But the machine isn't powered by anything. Yeah, but it's made of metal, and he's covered in batteries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Electricity does some weird shit. I know. So after two hours of labor, Sarah reached out and touched the device. Zero out of ten, don't believe it. Two hours? That's not long enough. No, don't believe it. Not when you saw me in labor for like what we guess, like thirty three hours. Thirty three hours, yeah. Witnesses said that when she touched the device, the inner rotor started moving. However, after a few moments it stopped and did not start the self perpetuating motion that was expected. Mm-hmm. Word of the machine spread, and John allowed his followers to come look and wonder at his machine. Some of them, they would, like, try to see motion. And they said if you looked hard enough and, like, squinted your eyes, you could see some of, like, the balls moving. Maybe. And I was just wondering if that was just somebody bumping into the table. No, and I mean, but that's like, that's like when you go hunting, right? Like, you go out in the mountains... And you're looking for deer, or you're looking for an elk. And so so every little thing that you see, like a rock, or a tree stump, or a bush, looks like a deer, or an elk, or whatever it is you're looking for. Right. Because you just that's what you're trying you're, to see. You're trying to see, yeah. You're trying. You're, and then you see one, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, gosh. I don't the, know how I've ever thought all of these rocks that I've been staring at for the past three days were elk, because <laughs> that is clearly what an elk is, because that is an elk. Right. The vast majority of viewers left disappointed, because hmm. it, it wasn't moving. Right. Even well-known spiritualists had harsh criticism of the machine and that, and thought that either the spirits played a joke on John or he never had a connection with the spirits in the first place. I like to think that they played a joke on him because <laughs> that's even you think more Benjamin, funny. Because Benjamin Franklin was apparently the main Prankster. ghost in this one. Yeah. So, I mean, he could have. That sounds like a Benjamin Franklin move. Yeah. Hey, guys, get this. So I did this a while ago, but I don't know if he knows that it doesn't work, but I'm going to give him to tie a key yeah. to, to a kite, fly it in a lightning storm. Watch this. <laughs> you guys, I had this guy spend so much money on this machine. It's not going to work. <laughs> Way better than that time Thomas Jefferson told me to tie a key to a kite. <laughs> yeah. Andrew Jackson Davis, also known as the Poughkeepsie Seer, said that John suffered from the terrible misfortune of being easily imposed upon by his own impulses. He mistakes them at least two-thirds of the time for impressions from higher intelligences. Davis feared that instead of a spiritualist, John was closer to a cult leader who was urging his followers to follow a false messiah. Mm. P.T. Barnum, the circus guy. Yeah. It's like, I'll buy it. Well, he declared that the machine was a humbug, no. meant to fool people, and that if things like this are going to happen, the ladies will be afraid to sleep alone in the house if so much as a sewing machine or apple core will be about. <laughs> oh my gosh, P.T. Barnum. John did not want to give up on his machine, though, and asked Sarah to spend more time with the machine. Maybe the machine needed more time to gestate, and it needed Sarah there to grow and develop it. Or maybe it was just an infant messiah spirit and needed time to be nurtured however as more of the public heard about the machine a growing group of people found the idea behind the machine to be heretical 
and they're upset at the audacity of John and his followers. You think you can put Jesus in a machine? Mm-hmm. How dare you? That's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what a lot of people said, too. Like, who are you? Yeah. Who are you to put Jesus in a machine? Right. John then went into another trance, where the spirits told him that he needed to move the machine to Randolph, New York. To somewhere people wouldn't find him. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, let's see. I'm getting spoke to right now by some spirits. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh-huh. You don't want me to tell them where I'm going? Are you sure? How are they going to find me? Oh, you, know, you don't want me to be found? Okay. Hey, guys. Uh, sorry. I was just... That was a trance. You should be uh, talking in a trance. So, here's the thing. The spirits don't want you to know where I'm going with this thing. So, it's going to have to be a secret. So, just, just so you know, like, that's why I'm disappearing. Because the spirit said so. Not because I want to disappear and I feel about, I don't know, this big. Yeah. Um. Though he did tell people where he was going. Oh, that's <laughs> He didn't listen to the spirits, apparently. He didn't listen. Um, he had plans to take it to Randolph, New York. Which had, a lot of crazies there. Which had a hill with superior magnetic energies. With a lot of crazies? Uh, no. Just just a different place. Just a normal amount just, of crazies. Just to get away from the already the one angry mob. Yeah. Because they didn't have the internet back then, so Randolph, New York didn't know what they were getting. Right. The machine was taken apart and then reassembled once it reached Randolph. John and his small band of followers then tried to get the machine to work again. A few months later, John wrote that under the cover of night, a mob entered, tore out the heart of the mechanism, trampled it beneath their feet, and scattered it to the four winds. Though no one knew who destroyed the machine, the rumor was that a group of young men from a local Baptist church was to blame. Those Baptists. Those Baptists. They get fired up. Every time. They're all fire and brimstone. Yep. <laughs> How- right? Right? Yep. <laughs> However, in November of 1854, the Scientific American wrote, We do not believe a word respecting a mob breaking into the building and destroying the spiritual machines. They're saying, We do not believe John saying that a mob came and destroyed his machine. Huh. I know, it's it's word funny, but it's the 1850s. Uh-huh. We are of the opinion that it was broken by the crafty author of it, whose schemes had come to the exact point of exposing his ridiculous pretensions. Yes, yes. Whether a mob destroyed the machine or John did it himself, it seems he gave up trying to create another spiritually powered machine. No, John, it's your calling. <laughs> Don't give up. You just need two thousand more dollars to buy some more stuff for another machine. Yeah, try again. Instead, he went back to focusing on social justice issues—the stuff that he's good at, the mm. stuff that we love him for. Yeah. He developed a new program. Don't mind the crazy part in the yeah. middle. He developed a new program that would replace institutionally sanctioned marriage with free love. Uh, he's still probably about a hundred <laughs> years too early for that. 110 years, 120 years. Maybe even more. Yeah. I'm thinking 60s, 70s. Yeah. Yes, like 110 years about, yeah. 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 He was an advocate of easily available birth control methods. Oh, man. 
Yeah. Was this guy time travel? Tra- like, was he literally trying to build a time traveling machine to get back to the time that he came from? Because these are all social issues that had been resolved by the time from the time that he came from. Possibly. Like that's my that's my theory. I think he was what's his name? John Murray Spear. John Murray Spear. Was or a time I think traveler. he was just. I think we just don't realize that there was reasonable people. At, like, all times of life, and we've just beaten them down and said no to them until they finally enough people group together to be heard and make uh, change. I have a hard time believing anybody from the 1860s was anti-slavery, mm-hmm. pro-Jesus in a box. <laughs> yeah, already. Like, there's, there was very few people that were pro-Jesus in a box. Uh, there you've already narrowed it down. <laughs> Pro free love. Mm-hmm. Pro birth control. Yep. Pro what else? Labor he, reform. Labor. Oh yeah, labor reform. What else was he? Pro. Pro. What is this guy? Just is a freeloading hippie <laughs> from the eighteen fifties. Yep, that's what he was. Uh, there was one other person that we've done an episode on at around the same time that I'll bring up their name soon. Marsha had very similar values. Oh, and he also believed in the woman's right to refuse sexual intercourse, even with their husbands. No. Yeah. This guy's the worst. Way ahead of his time. This guy is the worst. (laughs) Jeremy's joking, by the way. In 1859, John had a son with his mistress, women's rights advocate Caroline Hinckley. In order to legitimize his son, John divorced his wife, Betsy. But oh, so is this just another classic situation of where he just wants to have all the free free love that he wants, but his wife can't? I don't know if he was against her having free love. Because you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But was he just literally into the free love thing so he could just have a son? Possibly. So maybe not that progressive. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you know what I'm saying. Though? I know what you're saying. Like, did he just be like, "I'm into free love," just so he could like do the free love thing? Yeah, like, yeah, of course. It I'm wasn't into free actually love, about so free I love have, for everybody. So I can have a lot of sex with a lot of women, but then, oh, my wife, no, she stays at home because she knows her place. It's it's in the kitchen, really. Yeah. You know, yeah, like one of those free lovers. I, I don't know exactly what his relationship was with his first wife. Uh. That's how'd she feel about it? I I don't know. There's not much on her. Hmm. But they had been married for 32 years when he divorced her to marry Caroline. Hmm. The baby and the divorce was a scandal, so John and Caroline left for England. They toured around... See, he left his wife behind. She wasn't a a real free love relationship, (laughs) in my mind. They toured around the country giving lectures, holding seances, and performed healings. In 1869, the Spearses returned to America, where they took part in a variety of causes. They also helped Victoria Woodhull. That's who Mm. I was talking about. Episode 58, Psychic for President. Yeah. She was all about free love, women's rights, anti-slavery. God, have you ever just not lived in a time and really wanted to go back and check it out? You think going back to the 1860s? I mean, I really would, because just to see, because obviously there's, there's, I think, particular viewpoints. You know, what do they always say? The victor writes the history. Right. So, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to actually go and live in and a before time. 
and see about- how many people work for like social justice reform. And- yeah, and those sorts of things. So they uh, met Victoria Woodhull, and they helped her organize her Equal Rights Party. Remember when she ran for president, mm-hmm. and she said that Frederick Douglass was her vice presidential running mate, and he was like, no, I'm not. Nobody, uh, nobody really asked me, wait. and I don't really want to. Um, and he helped her fight for women's rights and health and social reform. So they kind of joined up there. Yeah. In 1872, John received a message from the spirits in which they told him that it was time to retire. Time to, mm. you know time it's to bad. hang it up. You know it's bad when somebody... When some dead people tell you it's time to retire. Mm-hmm. We're tired of talking to you. <laughs> Please stop trying to contact us. <laughs> uh, He's like, he, he, John is essentially like the, the old time... Uh, uh, car extended warranty. <laughs> yeah. Phone caller. Finally, Thomas Jefferson. No unknown number. I, <laughs> I don't need a warranty for my car. Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin like, this guy, he's mm-hmm. it's enough. Of his career, John wrote that, Dearly have I loved the work in which I was engaged. I have been helped to see that beyond the clouds that were round about me, there was a living, guiding, intelligent, beneficent purpose, the elevation, regeneration, redemption of the inhabitants of this earth. John Murray Spear died on October 5th, 1887, at the age of 83. His obituary was published by the spiritualist newspaper, The Banner of Light. In the obituary, it described the indefatigable nature of the man who has now gone to participate as an arising spirit in new efforts for human good. There are some people that believe that John's new motive machine is still around today. The reasoning is that there were no news reports describing the arrival of John and his machine in Randolph, New York. There are also no local reports of the device being destroyed, just John writing about the destruction of the device a year after he claimed that it happened. Some think that the machine actually worked, and instead of taking it to Randolph, New York, he went and hid it somewhere else so that it could grow in power away from angry mobs. So him saying, oh, I'm going to Randolph, everybody, was a ruse, and he actually took it somewhere else. They believe when it is ready, it will come back to the public's attention. It's in Area 51. It's in Nevada. Recently, when Miss Ackerman, also known as Old Lady Crackerman, I found this on a blog. I don't know how real this is. This is the last paragraph of the story. This is the only thing I was able to find, so I don't know how realistic this is. But... When she died in Greeley, Colorado, it was discovered in her will that she wanted her house to be cleared and all of the contents to be auctioned off with the proceeds of the auction to go towards local pet rescue charities. Ackerman was a hoarder and her home was filled with a lot of stuff, including a large collection of antiques. One of the antiques discovered was a machine made up of brass cogs, dials, glass cylinders, and a clockwork system. Mounted the machine was a brass plate that was engraved with the words, New Motive Power, John Murray Spear. Instead of being auctioned off, the machine has been loaned from Miss Ackerman's estate to a local spiritualism expert to be tested for its authenticity. That's a picture of what they found in her house. But see, it doesn't have all of the balls. With the magnets. With the magnets that was described. Did she have cats? I don't think this is it. Did she have cats? (laughs) That just played with all the played with all the balls. 
I don't know if she had cats or not. I don't think this is it. But anyways, that's the story of... John Spear. John Spear. Cool. And his weird machine. Yeah. My sources for the story are John Murray Spear by John Buescher, When 19th Century Spiritualists Believed a God Machine Would Save Humanity by Andrew Lenore, and Metal Messiah by Mark Pilkington. Presidential trivia. Which president was offered contracts to both the Green Bay Packers and the Detroit Lions? Was it George Sr.? No. Ah. Neither of the Bushes. It was President Gerald Ford. Ah, should have guessed. In 1935, Green Bay Packers went looking for a center and offered Gerald Ford $110 a game to come play for the Packers. Ford declined the offer and also another offer from the Detroit Lions to play football for them and instead went to Yale to study law, then to the Navy, to the then to the House of Representatives, and finally the White House. So, did he make the right decision? Mm. <laughs> Who's to say? He became president without a single vote ever being cast for him. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe he's just a lucky guy. Like... He's just one of those guys that everything falls in their lap. Like, oh, do you want to play football? And he's like, no, not really feeling it. And then later they're like, do you want to be president? He's <laughs> like, okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We're going to try to get rid of our colds, but we all, we hope you all stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay, stay weird, America. America.